Uniting is not just an aged care provider. It also provides services across New South Wales and the ACT, including preschool and early learning, foster care, disability support, mental health support, counselling and mediation, youth services, as well as housing and homelessness support. Uniting is here for you at every stage of life. To find a Uniting service near you, call 1800 864 846 or go to uniting.org. Oldie Goodie is a podcast series created for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a replacement for psychological assessment and treatment. Always consult your own healthcare professional. My 62nd birthday, I, I sat up in bed and said, I know what I want to do. I want to sing in a band. <laughs> what I like about end of life is generally all the garbage falls away and you're left with the core of the person. Just because you look a little bit different on the outside doesn't mean that you've changed on the inside. Hello and welcome to Oldie Goodie, a podcast series that celebrates ageing and all that comes with it. I'm Nikki Buckley, wife and mother of three young men now, but perhaps better known to many of you for my years as television host on the game show Sale of the Century. But now I am so happy to be here as co-host of Oldie Goodie with you, Matt, as we explore some of the interesting life changes we experience as we age. And I'm Matt Ferguson, husband, father of two, surfer, and I work with Uniting. I'm passionate about understanding how we can help people to age well. On each episode of Oldie Goodie, Matt and I, together with some amazing guests, will be diving a little deeper into some of the more positive sides of ageing, because after all, getting older is just a part of life. Today's episode is the last in Season 1 of Oldie Goodie, so if you're only just joining us, be sure to subscribe and listen to the rest of the series. Yes, and because this is the last episode, for now, we thought we'd talk to a father and his daughter about how their relationship has changed over time and how it has evolved after going through challenges together. We're not just talking to any father-daughter combo, we're talking with Flick Palmateer and her dad Warwick. For those of you who don't know Flick, Flick is a professional surfer and her dad Warwick is a potter. And if you'd like to see some amazing pottery, just look Warwick up online and you'll find some amazing stuff there. And the gorgeous Flick made headlines last year and captured hearts after the nation watched her find out that her mum, Pauline, had passed away while she was filming Australian Survivor Brains vs Brawn. Now, this was actually both really compelling and also very difficult to watch as she navigated this on national television. And we are very happy to have both Warwick and Flick join us now. Welcome, guys. Thank you. We're privileged to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Warwick, I wanted to start with a question for you. Now, as this episode is about celebrating the benefits of age within families and the importance of strong family connections in the ageing process, I know you and Flick are are really close. So I wanted to ask, like, how has your relationship changed throughout the years? Uh, well, it's always changing. I mean, from when Felicity was first born to she's my first child, she was a bit of an experiment. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you're sort of learning along the way as you go. And that was an interest, is a very interesting time when she was first come into the world because- an exper- Do you mean an experiment like <laughs> I was actually planned or not? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, no, no, it was all planned and everything, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, but no, that was just the just the whole notion of going from being a couple to having a child 
is a big thing. And then obviously as the, as Felicity grew, uh, we had more children, Luke and Alex as well. Their relationship is constantly changing, I guess. But when you bring other children into the, into the mix as well, the relationship changes. But I guess for one thing, Felicity and I had a very big part of our relationship in early years where I was not only her father, but I also became a coach for her as well, or teaching her surfing. So that's how it started off, just teaching her surfing, and then it ended up becoming pretty much a full-time coaching gig for me because Felicity showed a lot of promise and ended up on the world tour. My relationship with her was not only a father, but as a coach, and we travelled the world together. That was an interesting time. It wasn't easy, I can tell you that, (laughs) um, because also – at that time, Felicity was going through, you know, sort of 15, 16, 17, you know, 17 year old female. It's not an easy time for any, any parent with their children at that age. I don't, I feel from my, just when I'm speaking to other parents and it's a time when children do sort of want to tend to probably break away a little bit from their parents as well. And I was also her coach as well and her father. Mm. So it was a very, very tricky time, but we negotiated it and. We're still here to, we, st- we survived it and we're still here and stronger for it, but it was, it was tricky. How did you choose which time to put the coach's hat on and which time to put the father's hat on? And I assume sometimes you would have had both hats on at the same time. That was the hardest thing, really, to be honest with you, when to be the dad and when to be the coach. And, you know, sometimes being the coach, you have to probably say a few hard things or that, that, Felicity probably didn't like to hear and then that would cross over to being the dad as well and then thinking gee have I gone too hard there on that you know because I've upset Felicity and you know and vice versa she would also say things to me as a coach but also as a father as well and so it was it was very very tricky. Things definitely got heated. It got heated at times (laughs) and I've got to say that that's honest to God it did and Anyone who's ever had that experience with their children, they'll probably relate to it straight away. It is it is very hard and to find the balance is really hard. I had a lot of good people around me too who advised me, other friends who could see into our relationship a little bit and would give me advice as well on things that uh, perhaps I didn't do right or whatever and that was really valuable for me too to have that feedback as well from people outside of the family as well and also within the family too. So. I was learning. We made a lot of mistakes, but we got a lot of things right too. And I, I think testimony of that is the fact that, you know, our bond is really strong still and we've got a fantastic relationship. Part of that journey's finished now, but it's a new journey now with what we're doing uh, together now. And then the, even being on this podcast is part of that journey. It's constantly changing. And in another five to 10 years, it'll be very different again, perhaps, you know, just, just, it's constant change and. Being able to adapt to it and move with it and communicate through it the whole lot has been really important, I think, for my relationship, not only with Felicity, but with my other three children, because I also have another child to my second wife now too. So I think it gets easier if, if you've had, as a children, as you have more, it's sort of like making pancakes. <laughs> I always relate it to you know, the, the first, the first one sometimes isn't always the best, but obviously it turned out really good. Don't get me wrong, but you know, Thanks, Dad. You, you get better, you get better as you sort of start flipping a few more. You know? so. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm the experiment. Now, well, now, now it's your, your turn flick. So, you know, you can, you can flip the narrative back. So from your perspective, <laughs> you know, how would you say the relationships progressed and changed over that time? Oh, I I completely agree with everything Dad said. I think that our relationship's been pretty different. The same thing as what Dad said about, you know, not only did he play the role of a father, but also played the role of a coach. And it's really hard because 
dad's always been a great dad, but he also tried to be a great coach. And when you try to get the best out of people, you've really got to, I don't know, there's an argument, a strong argument for you've really got to push them. And when you're really pushing your daughter, sometimes those lines can be blurred. And I felt like sometimes when I look back now, I can see why dad did what he did. But at times I was like, shit, is your love conditional to how I'm performing right now? (laughs) Of course, I don't think that now, but like at the time, obviously I kind of knew he always wanted to get the best out of me, but it's hard when you're trying to play both roles. We've always remained pretty close though, I think, like although dad doesn't coach me now, we still surf together all the time. And I actually think it's probably good. Who knows what would have happened if dad still kept coaching me? Maybe it would have been great. Maybe it (laughs) wouldn't have been, but I think it's this nice now for us to just be able to just go for a surf together and for it to be fun and for there to be like no pressure and no stress, you know, it's just us going for a surf and enjoying what I fell in love with originally, which was just going for a surf with family and spending time at the beach. So both of you have, you know, had challenges in your life as as we all do and flick one of your biggest challenges played out on national tv after your mum you know sadly passed away while filming survivor and I, I have to say my family and I were with you all the way watching your journey and as viewers it was truly inspiring but also you know really tough viewing at times so how do you overcome challenges as a father and daughter so that moment in my life, I'll give you a bit of a backstory to anyone that didn't watch the season, but I was on Australian Survivor Brains versus Brawn. Prior to me going on the season, like I, I knew my mum had been sick. My mum was diagnosed six years ago with FTD, which is frontotemporal dementia. So in the space of those six years, in the last three, my mum had deteriorated so fast that uh, she was immobile, nonverbal. She couldn't shower or feed herself. She was permanently in a wheelchair and at a high care facility and she was in Perth. My relationship with my mum had changed so much over those years. Like it wasn't really the same it wasn't the same mum. It sounds bad, but it wasn't the same mum as what I always knew. And prior to me going on the show, the occupational therapist at the place that my mum was at had called my grandma in, my mum's mum, and been like, look, we're guessing that Pauline might only have another year, right? And, you know, when the time comes, like, we think that she's probably going to stop swallowing. So, when that time comes, you're going to need to make some decisions around this, like what you would want to do if you would want to prolong her life or if you would like to, you know, let nature take its course, as bad as that sounds. But there'd been so much suffering with, like, so much suffering on so many different levels, like within our family. There's a lot of things that happened as a result of mum's condition, Mm. like just so much, you know, and so suffering as a family, my mum's suffering, like which was terrible to watch. Like I wouldn't wish that on like my worst enemy. Like it was horrible. It was horrible. So basically uh, two days before I left for Survivor, my family got together, my two brothers, Luke and Alex, my mum's sister and my grandma. And we kind of made the decision as a family that if that time was to come, we would let nature take its course. So I left two days later and then six weeks into filming is when I got the call from my brother. An executive producer pulled me aside and was like, you need to, you know, get on the phone and speak to your brother. There's, you know, been something that's happened at home and nothing can quite prepare you for that moment, even though I'd been preparing myself for six years because anyone will understand me that's experienced losing a loved one to dementia, that you lose them gradually every day a little bit. So you're grieving this person for a long time, but nothing can prepare you for that moment when you got told the news that they're physically not here anymore. Like it's devastating. I just, I, yeah, devastated, I guess. Like I honestly, you know, it was a possibility and I was aware of that when I left, but I didn't think it would happen within six weeks. And it just goes to show that 
you honestly don't know. Even though I knew that when mum was diagnosed, it would be terminal. You just never know, right? When when something like this is going to happen. So I always remember, and I'll always be really thankful for this, but it was actually my brother, Alex. He said to me, you know, after we, you know, I'd had like a couple of hours on the phone to him, like processing everything. He said, um, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, I hope you're not thinking of coming back home. He's like, I, I think you should stay. I think mum would really want you to have stayed. Like, you know, we've been grieving this Felicity for six years and I really hope that you stay on, stay on the show and I hope that you play for mum because your very reason for going on there in the first place was to play for your family because, you know, not only have we had mum that's been sick, but we've had other health issues within the family. And I think it's just really made me realise that nothing in life's guaranteed and you really have to make the most of every opportunity. And he's like, I hope you stay and I hope you keep playing. And so, I made that really incredibly difficult decision and I had all of my family's support. Like I'd actually rang dad too and I, I had the opportunity to, to speak to dad on the phone and I had all their support. So that made me feel really supported in the decision I made. I was still so nervous about that decision because this is filmed on national television. So this is going to go to air. How is this decision going to be perceived by people who haven't walked a mile in my shoes for people who haven't experienced losing a loved one to dementia? Like what are they going to think? Because if they don't understand my full story, I could be perceived like people might be like, oh my God, like that girl's mum just passed away and she's still on the show. Like, I don't understand that, you know? So I was so much anxiety around that, but I actually ended up making it to the end. So I was a finalist on the show, um, bas- like basically lost by an inch. Like I can't, <laughs> it's just incredible. But um, I'm like so proud of like the decision I made and to like stay on there and play for mum. Oh, I'm going to get emotional. Oh, 100%. Um, <laughs> I'm getting emotional yeah. hearing it because I, yeah. like I said, we watched it as a family <laughs> and it totally played out beautifully. And then just hearing you, yeah. the little backstory and the conversation with your brother just totally gave me um, chills. And yeah, yeah, by all accounts, you did what was right for you and your family. And mm. yeah, it was a wonderful outcome. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was good. But yeah, I mean, it's hard. Like, so since being back, like obviously on the show, I tried to compartmentalize it because it's just so much to take on. The show in itself is already so grueling. Like anyone that doesn't know what it's about, it's basically 48 days in the desert. You literally walk in with nothing but the clothes on your back. You are sleeping in dirt. You're given rations every day. So you go from eating probably on average, everyone eats probably 2000 calories a day. You're going down to eating 600. You're starving. I lost eight kilos in 48 days. So you're physically you're just deteriorating mentally you are and then you're playing these incredibly tough challenges right so it's already so stressful on your body and then to throw in like something so traumatic Mm. on top of that and dealing with that so once I got back it was like a delayed although I'd been grieving it for six years I just god there was a lot to process there definitely so Flick I can imagine during your mum's health battles there may have been times when you realized you were not a dependent but you were being depended on Mm -hmm. Um, how did that shift feel did you how did you experience that? So, well, yeah, it's difficult. So, mum was diagnosed at 46. To be honest, when mum was first diagnosed, I didn't even know that early onset dementia was a thing. I didn't even know it really existed, let alone FTD. I didn't know there was different types of dementia, right? So, it kind of opened up my world to the whole new thing. Because a lot of mum's symptoms were behavioural, like I was almost like, just got to say it, but like I was almost embarrassed and that sounds bad, but it's the truth. I didn't know how to even have these kind of conversations with my friends because no one knew what I was going through because no one, 
usually you don't experience these things with your parents until you get a lot older, you know. So no one my age could relate. Initially, that was really hard in the first couple of years. And then when she started to deteriorate and she moved in with my grandma, so my mum's mum started caring for my mum again. I was actually, because I've been a professional surfer, I was traveling the world then. And I'll be forever grateful for what my grandma did. Like she literally took her own daughter back in again and looked after my mum for probably, I want to say like three to four years. And my grandma ended up being the person that was at the end there when she was living at home still, like showering mum, even feeding her towards the end, you know, like, I mean, and there's times that I would come back home and I'd go and see mum, even when she was in her high care facility. But, you know, I'm wheeling her around in the wheelchair, feeding her food and she's can't, you know, she couldn't, towards the end, she couldn't eat any solids anymore. So they're all liquid foods. And uh, it's it's a crazy role re- reversal, but it gives you this really good perspective on life, I think. And it's given me way more, is empathy the right word? Mm. I don't know. I just, dad and I were talking about it on the way here. Myself, Luke and Alex, when we we're growing up, we were always close with our grandparents. So I've never really, there's never been a real stigma around like aging or even a stigma around our grandparents. So I've always been so used to being around them. Like, yes, I was scared about my mum's condition at the beginning but what ended up happening is like I just became more vocal about it and communicating it with with my friends so I've got a really close friend who's known my mum for years and like as soon as I started talking about it and just like normalizing it it just became a lot easier I guess like communication is key yeah but it's 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 hard to see that kind of role reversal happen it's lovely the way you put it and it's lovely hearing you talk about like the extended family and being so close with your grandparents and no stigma about, you know, the aging process, which fits perfectly with, you know, all the things that we keep discussing here on our podcast. Now, Warwick, I'll throw back over to you. We know that you have from, you know, these conversations, a really close extended family. It's not just you and Flick that have a great relationship. It's the brothers and the grandparents. So as the patriarch of the family, what do you think is the secret to having a family that is you know, this close, like we, it's something that we all strive for in our lives. I think we were very blessed as a family because my parents and Pauline's parents live very close to where we lived as well. And they were really willing to look after the children for us as well in the early years when, you know, if we needed a babysitter or we needed to, to do something, there was always the grandparents there, always put their hand up to look after Luke and Alex and Felicity for us. And I think having that bond from such an early age when they were first born with their grandparents and their aunties, and it just makes that, I guess, well, it's just, just really creates this extended family that the children know that they can call them up. They can, they're part of their upbringing as well. I'm an artist. I was, a, I was a potter. I mean, I'm a potter. I was, we had our own business and I was making pottery at the time. I had a studio that I built in the backyard of Pauline's mum and dad's place. So I could work there. The children could be there. Harry and Els, that's, that's Pauline's mum and dad, were able to be around and, and look after the children while I was still working in the studio at the back. And Pauline was working with me as well because she was decorating the work that I was making. And so it was this sort of cottage industry that was going on in the backyard of, of the grandparents' place as well. Well, that was how we derived our income. And then we would go to different craft fairs and sort of markets and so forth and sell the work on the weekends and the children would all come along as well. Then the grandparents would help us out, you know, just packing the car up and, you know, if we needed to leave the children with them for the weekend if we were going away somewhere or whatever, like we couldn't bring them, they would look after the children. So we had this amazing extended family and we've maintained it. That's the only way I can sort of, I, I can see how it's happened because of that relationship always being there from when they were first born, the children, 
and just maintaining it and being a really, I guess, inclusive family. And we always have had that. So it sounds really idyllic. Well, Paul and I made a conscious decision as well at the time when we had children that we didn't want to both work. We always wanted one of us to be at home or the grandparents to look after the children. So a really, really, really close relationship for the whole family, really, around the extended family, the grandparents as well. And so if I've got any advice for anyone who's having children, if you've got the opportunity, you know, you live close in a close proximity to really make sure you, you know, you if you can, bring the grandparents and get them involved. And Flick, um, what what lessons have you learnt from, from your dad? Oh, okay. One of the best lessons that dad sort of taught me would be, I guess, resilience. <laughs> he was always dishing out advice, I think, whether I liked it or not. At the time, I probably thought, you know, this is really annoying. I don't want to be hearing this. It was slightly upsetting. But at the time, it was the truth. And I think looking back now, I'm actually really glad because I feel like that was the foundation for everything that I've been able to do in life, whether it be sport or, you know, unimaginable stress on a reality TV show, whatever it is, I think he's always been someone that's always taught you know, it doesn't matter. As long as you're pushing yourself, you're going out of your comfort zone in like kind of whatever form that may take, it's always going to result in growth. And he's always been the person that's kind of told it how it is. And at the time I mightn't have liked it, but now I look back and I'm like, you know what? I'm actually quite grateful for that. I think another thing, I guess it was kind of like the value of sacrifice is what he taught me because it's valuable being able to do sacrifice for something, you know, whether that be like for my sport to get to a certain place or whether that be with family because dad, like he said before, made that conscious decision that, you know, he really wanted to be around the kids and like really spend a lot of time. But you put in that time and you're going to get in return, you know what I mean? Not that you're doing it in expect for something in return, but it's like anything in life. If you want to become good at something, you put the time into it. If you want to have a great relationship with your family. It takes time and it takes work. One other thing is, um, which is actually kind of funny, he also taught me to dance like nobody's watching. And anyone that has seen my dad (laughs) dance, holy moly, dad on the dance floor is crazy. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Sweat dripping off him, arms everywhere. Oh, classic. Doesn't care what anybody thinks that I think, yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's that's the old many years at seeing live music and with a good with a good band in front of you and you know the whole surf sort of culture when i was growing up was everyone everyone danced mm. like that that's but, true <laughs> like, no, like nobody's watching no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> so warwick you've obviously taught all these fabulous life lessons to your beautiful daughter flick but what has the student taught the master <laughs> um the student oh well gee she's taught me a lot I'm actually blown out how far she actually did take surfing, really, to be honest with you, because it's a very tough sport to make it in, like for men, let alone for a, for a female, and to make a full-time living out of it that she has, that she's blown me out, and that's taught me that she has really got the, she really has resilience, and she really has put all the surfing, everything to become the best. She's really, she's really put that there and worked hard to get there, worked extremely hard. She's inspiring from that point of view for myself too, so... The ultimate inspiration for me was, you know, a few years ago when she decided to go on these big wave events and watching her go to Hawaii and live, watching it on Fuel TV or whatever it was on ESPN and back sitting in my little lounge room in <laughs> Yanship, watching her paddling into 40-foot waves at Jaws. Wow. Yeah, but the funny thing is, I'm just going to yeah. interrupt here for one <laughs> second. Dad always was the person that would push me to like 
charge to have no fear. I'd be like 10 years old. He'd be like, right, we're going out here. It's 10 foot. And I'd be like, I don't want to. And then now when I said, I was like, dad, I want to transition into big wave surfing. I'm going on the big wave world tour. I got an invite into this event. Dad watched. I got an invite into Jaws. And dad literally, well, I spoke to him on the phone. I was like, nah, dad, I'm going. He's like, are you sure you know what you're doing? Do you really want to go over there? I'm like, dad, you're the one that buddy pushed me into doing this sport <laughs> and pushed me into like having no fear. And now you're questioning. It was like he was like saying goodbye to me the oh. last time because he thought I was going to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, oh, look, I mean, I've got to be honest with you. That, that's that's such another level mm-hmm. of surfing that. I never thought that Felicity would go down that path. And I mean, truly, it scares the absolute hell out of me when I see waves like that. And let alone knowing that my daughter's out amongst it, yeah. paddling around in the lineup, trying to get one mm. of them and catch one. And not only just catch one, but to compete to win an event like that. I mean, that blew me out. I mean, it's in- inspirational. I mean, I'm a, I've been a surfer since, since I was very young. And that to me is just totally inspiring watching her what she did and yeah i mean look the last time she was there she got second in the event but to be honest with you i mean she caught the biggest waves of the whole event and just unlucky that uh, in the final she just needed a second wave she would have just taken off and fallen off she would have won it you take off on a 30 footer and go over the falls <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's easy easier to say, than done <laughs> i was going crazy sitting at home watching it watching the clock ticking down think just take off for this, no, this no, go. basically because <laughs> If I would have taken off, I would have had a world title. Yeah. But now I'm currently number two in the world. So <laughs> that doesn't sit right with dad. And he's like, that's not good enough. Oh. Yeah, I know. But I was, so, I'm, I'm totally, that's, that's really inspired me. But also the whole thing about the survivor, watching mm. that, watching your child on national TV. I mean, I never thought I'd do that, but that was pretty amazing. And then obviously with what the scenario that played out, the way that that was filmed, it was, we saw it about two months or, what was it, six weeks after it was finished filming? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. But then just to sit there and watch it back, you know, yeah, really emotional for me. And Yeah, I bet it was tough. Yeah, tough, yeah. And yeah, it was a very, very, very sad time for us all with the mother passing away. But the way that Felicity dealt with it is inspiring. So, I mean, Felicity really is an inspiration, I've got to be honest with you. I mean, <laughs> she's, in, she's inspired me so much. That yeah, time. yeah. But you know what the funny thing is, as I always say, when people ask me and they – you know, for an interview, they're like, oh, who inspires you the most? And I always say, well, my biggest source of inspiration is my dad. So that's funny. Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> it's going to make me emotional. It's coming back the other way now. So, um, you know, that's amazing. And she's got a really beautiful nature, Felicity. She's very caring and kind. And I've got another little child to my my second wife, Helen, and his name's Sydney and the way that she interacts with him and my other two children as well, Luke and Alex as well, they just love him and adore him and they know he's you know part of their family and, yeah, it's a whole new generation but seeing uh, her around there, around Sydney is just amazing too, so. Well, you said you now said dad's crying. Oh. You made dad cry. <laughs> well, I don't want to. I don't want to make you both yeah, cry. Yeah. I mean, listening to both of you talk about each other and the whole family connection and how you've all kind of you know looked after each other and and had everyone's back along the way. And I guess we now know Warwick that you have a little bit of health problems yourself. So I guess it's turning the tables again. I and mean, how do you you know feel? I guess allowing other people to look after you now in your situation. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I was diagnosed with leukemia almost two years ago, but it's a challenge for me. I'm fortunate that I have got such close family and extended family as, as well. In fact, I'm, I've got an appointment straight after this podcast and Felicity's dropping me in at the hospital on the way through. So, you know, I've got that. And my wife, Helen, she's, she's really helping me all the time as well. Basically, really good food and cooking around me and her family as well, her mother and father and her auntie. And her sister, and so there's a whole another extended family 
there as well who are also there for Felicity, Luke and Alex too. Obviously, Sydney, their grandson there too. So I'm very, very fortunate that um, family's always been so special in my life and, and the extended family's always been there for us. Yeah, so with this new journey that I'm on, I couldn't do it without it, <laughs> to be honest with you. Very, very lucky. And I know that I only have to make a phone call if I need someone to help me and they're there, you know. Yeah. And generally, I, don't, I, I haven't even had to make a phone call because people just know, you know, they just they just they seem to be around me when yeah, I Yeah, but d- dad's, dad's a yeah. doer. Dad, dad honestly, oh, far out. Sometimes I wonder, I'm like, holy shit, dad, like you've literally got this diagnosis and he's still running around trying to do a million things and trying to be this like, you, you yeah. still are a madman sometimes. <laughs> and I mean, I think in some ways it's probably good because, you know, you're still keeping yourself busy and you're still doing things actively and you're surfing a bit and, you know, it's just, but I think, yeah, I don't know. I think um, everyone knows, you know, everyone wants to help you as much as possible. And like you said, no, you don't even need to make a phone call. Everyone just wants to help where they can. Yeah, it's good. I, and I appreciate that. Well, thank thank you so much for your time today, guys. It's been really thanks great talking to us. you. Yeah, thank thanks you. so much thank for you. having us. Matt, weren't they just the most lovely couple, couple as in father and daughter? Oh, I'm just blown away by the the generations within their family, how interconnected they all were and just to see the beautiful relationships between, you know, children and parents and then children and grandparents and even great-grandparents. And, and grandparents in the end when, when Warwick said that, I couldn't believe there was another grandparent layer in there. It was like an onion it kept feeling. I was really blown away by their interaction, by the love that they show to each other. They're very affectionate and loving, and I think that's often not shown between Mm. people. And then just a massive amount of respect that they had for each other, both at a relationship level as a a father-daughter, but also, you know, just even their professional choices, Mm. so their career choices and what they did and the great lessons that they learned from each other over the years. Um, And I I really like the the three things that Felicity talked about, that resilience, like learning resilience to get up and keep going, self-sacrifice, you know, that if something's worth doing, you've got to sacrifice some things to get to it. And of course, my very favourite of all time, like dance like there's no one. (laughs) (laughs) We're joined now by clinical psychologist, Melissa Levi. Melissa specialises in older people's mental health and dementia. Melissa is with us in the studio to reflect on some of the insights shared by Flick and Warwick. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me back. Hello, Mel. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Great to see you again. During that interview, Flick talked about her mum's dementia and she mentioned FTD. Can you tell us a bit more about the different types of dementia? Absolutely. And and I have to say, I found myself getting a little bit teary-eyed when Flick was speaking about her mum. And I know from walking that journey with so many of my beautiful clients and their families, it is a very, very tough one. One of the questions that I am most commonly asked, I always say, you know, if I had a dollar for every time is what is the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease? So, the way that I like to think about dementia is a little bit like an umbrella term. So, if you can visualize an umbrella and underneath its canopy are over a hundred different types of dementia. And the way that we differentiate between them 
is that each type has its own cause. So the underlying pathology or the underlying cause of the disease is different according to the different types of dementia. And therefore, the symptoms can be different and the the disease progression can be different. The reason that we tend to get so confused between dementia and Alzheimer's disease is that Alzheimer's disease actually accounts for around about 70% of all cases of dementia. So sometimes we use those terms interchangeably. And Alzheimer's disease, one of the sort of clinical hallmark features is that short-term memory loss. So that's why we uh, often think of dementia and think of, I guess, forgetfulness. But really, that's only one symptom, often the first symptom of Alzheimer's disease. The second most common type of dementia that some people may have heard of is vascular dementia. And all of us have a delicate network of fine blood vessels all throughout our brains. And it's perfectly normal and natural that as we get older, some of these blood vessels will become a little bit damaged. But in vascular dementia, the extent of that damage is in excess of what we would expect um, within sort of the realms of just healthy, normal aging. My own grandfather, my Zeta, had a combination of Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. So he had a, a bit of both. They're the most common. And then we get into some of the, the rarer types of dementia. So Flick mentioned frontotemporal dementia, and I won't get too technical. That's almost a little bit of an umbrella term in and of itself, because there are a number of different subtypes of frontotemporal dementia. But that, as the name suggests, is where the the pathology or the disease predominantly affects the frontal lobes, so the lobes at the front of the brain, right behind the forehead, and the temporal lobes. So you've got two temporal lobes behind your ears, and that can affect uh, language skills, but, you know, I guess it can also affect your behavioral control, your emotion regulation, your your frontal lobes are also like the CEOs of your brain. So they coordinate all of your other thinking skills. And as Flick mentioned, often that is diagnosed earlier than say your, your typical Alzheimer's disease. In Flick's mum, it was at 46, which is is just so heartbreaking. And as I said, then there are more than 100 other types of dementia. The term that comes up often is early onset dementia. Yeah. And so could you just dive into that one a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, most cases of dementia, I suppose thinking about the risk factors for dementia, the biggest risk factor is age. So most dementias are diagnosed after the age of 65. When we start talking about early onset dementia, that's where we start to see symptoms and um, pathology or disease in the brain before the age of 65. In Flick's mum, it was FTD, but another sort of common um, early onset dementia is early onset Alzheimer's disease. I don't know if you read the book or saw the film Still Alice by Lisa Genova. So in that, it's a fictional story, but it's oh, it's just absolutely heart-wrenching, but it's, it's quite beautiful. Just if you watch it, have a really big box of tissues next to you. Um, but I do recommend it. It's a beautiful I'm, I'm film. I'm a shocking movie crier, so yeah. I probably will steer away from that. <laughs> but that, that portrays, I guess, the journey of an early onset Alzheimer's disease. And, and in those conditions, they do tend to progress a bit more rapidly than when it's diagnosed later in life. 
Well, it's, yeah, it's definitely comes across as a very sad disease. And I think something that touched me when Flick was talking, she said she was losing her mum bit by bit, Mm -hmm. you know, day by day. So how do you deal with grieving the loss of your loved one when they're actually still with you and alive? I will always remember um, one of the I suppose that the functions that I that I offer within my role at the hospital is carer support. It's something that's really close to my heart and something that I really feel very privileged to do to support those who are supporting their loved ones um, with dementia. And this lovely wife, her husband was a professor and developed um, very severe. I mean, of course, it took a number of years, but but by the end had very severe, very progressed dementia. And he was in high care in a residential aged care facility. And when we were talking about her experience of walking this journey with him, she said, it's a living grief. Mm. And those words just spoke so directly to my heart because I suppose that when we when we lose someone, when somebody passes away, when they die, it is devastating. But I suppose in a sense, our and I need to word this carefully, but I suppose the in many cases the suffering or the the act of caring has come to an end and we then sort of fully can focus on and experience our grief. But with dementia, often we have to hold all of that emotion, all of that grief, but at the same time, we are still day by day experiencing loss and suffering and having to, just from a purely practical perspective, continue caring and how do you hold both Mm. at the same time. And this, this carer that I was working with said to me, she said, you know, I feel as though I can't imagine losing him. I don't want to lose him. I can't imagine living and being here without him, but I don't want him to keep living like this. It's about, I guess, finding a way through that murky water where really there is no option A. We're all going to live some form of our option B and how do we do that to the best of our abilities? And what I said to her is, Her husband at that time was living moment to moment. And I said, you know, if you can step into that moment, he may not remember a moment of joy. He may not remember a moment of connection, but in that moment, he will feel it and you will be enriching his quality of life in that moment and you'll remember it. Mm. So, for example, they were big symphony goers. So, of an afternoon when he was a little bit unsettled, a little bit agitated, she would go into the care facility and they would sit there often both with their eyes closed. I remember walking past his room and seeing them just sitting on the bed with their eyes closed listening to music. Or she would take him up the road and they would get a coffee together. And it was just about, I suppose, forgetting the past and trying to let go of what might be tomorrow and just in that moment trying to step into his reality and feel that sense of connection. And I said to her, when you go home at night, she was having difficulty sleeping, quite understandably. And I said, keep a little notebook beside your bed and every night try to think of three moments from that day that brought you joy or brought you meaning or three moments that you were grateful for because it will do two things. Firstly, it will train your brain to look for those moments in amongst all the hardship and the difficulty. And neurologically, we know that practices of gratitude can actually change the way that our brains are wired and our experience of our our lives. And I said, the second thing that it will do is that when things are just 
overwhelmingly devastating. You will have this book and you will have these memories that will stay with you. And I kept in touch with her even after her husband did eventually pass on. And she said, you know, I cherish that Mm. book. Just something else to, to add there is often with dementia, once we're sort of fully in it, a question that I get asked a lot is, you know, is there anything that we can do to prevent it? Mm-hmm. And the really good news and the really hopeful news here is yes, 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 yes. So in 2017, a study was published in The Lancet that caused a lot of excitement because it suggested that a third of all cases of dementia are due to modifiable risk factors. So what that means is that potentially we can prevent a third of all cases of dementia. So this is very exciting. Give it to us. <laughs> Let me. Yeah. What have you got to do? <laughs> so basically, uh, and you can tell me if this is your understanding, were you ever told or were you of the assumption that when you're born, you get this sort of boom of brain cells and then they sort of just gradually die off over the lifespan? Was that was Especially that if you drink you- too much. I always, <laughs> I always thought the dust in my ear after a heavy night out was brain cells yeah. leaving and they're not <laughs> yeah. coming back. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that was my weird pathology. Well, you, you could argue that those heavy nights out create a life well lived, but yes. I mean, that's a whole nother, another conversation. Another episode, yeah. um, but so basically what we used to think is that you get this boost of all of these new brain cells, all of these new neurons when you're in your childhood or adolescence. And then over the course of your life, you slowly sort of gradually lose them. We now know that that is not the case. So you can create new brain cells and new connections between your brain cells until the day you die. This is called neuroplasticity. And this is what has allowed us to realize that we can continue to protect and reinvigorate our brains throughout our lifetimes. So what are the things that we can do to promote neuroplasticity, Mm. which I guess, you know, gives us some protection against dementia? So one of the best things to do is look after your heart. So we know that our heart health is very closely linked to our brain health. So anything that's good for your cardiovascular system is good in protecting against dementia. So these are things like engaging in exercise, you know, getting your heart pumping on a regular basis, things like keeping blood pressure, cholesterol, um, things like diabetes in check and well-managed. The second thing that you can do is to learn something new. So often if we're doing things that we're good at um, or familiar with, Mm. they can be accommodated by the existing networks of brain cells in our heads. But if we want to push our brains to have to create new cells and new connections, we need to learn something new. So it could be learning a musical instrument. I have clients in their 70s, 80s, 90s that are learning new instruments, Mm. learning a new language, learning how to do a craft, learning how to cook. Um, I mean, my husband would tell you it would take a lifetime to teach me how to cook. (laughs) So, you know, all of of these things are going to promote that neuroplasticity. A third one, and I think this really came through in Flick and Warwick's discussion, is connection. Mm -hmm. So, when we socialize, we are using so many different parts of our brain. 
sentence. We're having to remember what the other person has said. We're having to use language to express ourselves. We're having to use our inhibition to maybe not say things that we shouldn't be saying. So all of the different parts of our brains are working together to engage in meaningful social connection. So keeping your, your social circles alive and well and thriving, um, and ideally as, you know, Flick and Warwick have, you know, keeping your kids close, yeah. um, you know, is really good as you get older. All of these things can protect. And the, the last thing I'll touch on briefly is also just the Mediterranean diet. Okay. So olive oil, fruits, veggies, and you will be so pleased to hear Matt and Nikki, red wine. Oh, Fantastic. Yes. Yes. I'm writing that in capital letters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they're all, I mean, you know, those three things in the and the the fourth, you know, Mediterranean diet that you added on, they're all such good Easy things, natural yes. things mm. to do, mm. aren't they, that everyone can do? What I love is they enrich often your life as you're living mm. it. It's not just to protect against dementia and to prepare for the future. I think these are all hallmarks of just a really good, vibrant, active lifestyle. Yeah, having yeah. passions. Yeah, and there's nothing, there's nothing there that's onerous or boring or you wouldn't enjoy if you yep. were doing, you know, if you, if you embrace all of those, they're going to be fun as well. Yeah, mm. so- well, Mel, that is all we have time for today. And in fact, that is a wrap up of our series. And it has been such a joy having you join us. Hasn't it been insightful? I mean, it's, I have learned so much and it's opened my eyes and I'm excited about the future. What about you, Matt? Oh, I'm excited just for the things I've learned. I mean, a couple of the big things that stuck out is one from you, Nikki, which is say yes mm. to opportunity. The other one was from Chantel, which was just the whole concept of outer course. <laughs> and then I had legumes and red wine, and I think combining the two is probably going to be pretty fun. But for me, the real big lesson was from Ian Smith when I asked him about my father, and he said, go home, listen to your dad, chat with your dad, and don't pat him on the head when he's telling you stuff. And I actually went home to my dad, and I said to him, this is the advice I got. And he said, yeah, son. You do. You figuratively pat me on the head when I'm telling you something. And I realized that my behavior was exactly what Ian was experiencing. It's changed the way now that I, I listen to my dad and the wisdom. And, and it was a real powerful moment for us and really hit home. And Matt, you are so not alone in that. In you know, this was such a privilege. So I just really want to express my thanks for including me in such a special project. And it just really brought home to me, you know, when I started out working as a psychologist and working with older people, I sort of had this altruistic, you know, desire thinking, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to make, you know, changes and improve their lives for the better. And over the past 10 years, I think what I've learned is that for anything that I have done for them, and I, I hope in some small way, maybe I've helped, but my God, they have been the ones that have changed my life. Mm. And I think hearing um, advice from Ian about, you know, treating older people with respect and, and making them feel valued, that they're not invisible. And, you know, from Richard, that anything is possible in later life. And, 
you know, from, from Tim, you know, eat, move, connect. These are lessons that have profoundly shaped my life. And this series has just made me realize why I love doing what I do and also really made me yearn a little bit for my grandfather, my Zeta, and just my hope that for yourselves and for everyone we love that's aging, that these sorts of conversations are going to make the journey ahead for them so much better and so much richer. Oh, thanks, Mel. That was such a beautiful wrap up. I think for myself, it is about passion. I'm always, you know, talking about passion and, and, you know, now finding new passions to fulfill those voids, you know, when we do retire and also just opening up our eyes to everyone around us, be it your immediate family, your grandparents or the people next door or the person down the street and how much value you can bring to them by just giving them five minutes of your time, which is a lifetime to them of feeling valued and feeling heard. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I guess something that, that really um, came out of this for me is that as we get older, we're just us. We're just yes. us. We stay yep. us yep. and we still have the same human needs. We just want to feel heard. We want to feel seen. We want to feel valued. And as Chantel would add, we want to feel sexy and we yeah. want to feel good. And just because the outer shell changes, you know, doesn't mean that we're somehow different on the inside. And I hope those who are listening, you know, maybe next Next time you spot an older person, you'll just take that moment to pause and rethink and then engage with them. And just a simple g'day, a good morning, a how are you, how's your day can make a difference in someone's life. And in your life. And in, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. 